0: Hello and welcome to the Future Work Life podcast. I'm Oli Henderson and in today's episode I discuss purpose with my guest Jeff McDonald. Jeff worked at Unilever for 25 years and at the end of his time there contributed to turning around what was an ailing business into a thriving global organisation, purpose at its heart. He now works with businesses that believe Purpose can give them a strategic advantage by creating a company that the best people want to work for. He's also a passionate mental health campaigner and is now able to follow his own purpose to create a world where everybody in every workplace feels they genuinely have the choice to put up their hand and ask for help when they're suffering from mental ill health. We explored the difference between using Purpose as a tool to improve business performance as opposed to a marketing exercise as well as practical examples of how Unilever and other companies have succeeded in achieving this. We also discussed why personal struggles and the tragedy of losing a close friend inspired him to leave the corporate world and advocate for open conversations about mental health. Jeff also shared his Can Do framework, a helpful reminder of the importance of consistent habits to maintain positive physical and mental health. If you enjoy our conversation, please check out the accompanying newsletter, which I'll be publishing later this week. Also, check out Jeff's website, where you can find out more about his work. I love talking to Jeff, and I started by asking him what prompted him to leave Unilever and go it alone. I mean, there are two things, I suppose, that that sort of led to me
1: pursuing that. I think the first was, you know, I was so lucky. I mean, I had the last five years of my career with Unilever, um... 2009 to 2014, is when Paul Pullman was appointed as the CEO, Uh, you know, and he came into this ailing business and decided that what it needed was a sense of purpose to help to transform the organization. And at the time, I was doing a a global VP HR role, which was looking after all of our marketing, sustainability, and communication efforts around the unity of the world. And the guy who was heading that part of the business up is a guy called Keith Weed. And, um, you know, Paul essentially tasked Keith to go out and to rediscover Unilever's sense of purpose um, and to then begin to embed that uh, into everything that we did, in particular the brands uh, across the organization. And so I spent five years archetyping and working on that transformation. And, you know, in the five years, we saw a significant transformation of Unilever, you know, in terms of its attractiveness as an employer, the engagement scores, the share price going through the roof. And um, and I kind of end of twenty fourteen or middle of twenty fourteen thought I wonder if I could do that for myself.
0: Hmm. So
1: imagine if I had a, a very clear sense of purpose, would I still be able to put a bit of food on the table and pay the mortgage? And uh, I suppose catalysed by you know my own my own lived experience of anxiety fueled depression back in two thousand and eight, but but more so, uh, and my ability. To come through that, but, but more so the loss of a very good friend um, in 2012, uh, who just couldn't talk about his struggles, and and it led to a disastrous consequence, which was him taking his own life. and uh, And I think it was those, it was that, it was that event that really catalysed me into beginning to raise the whole issue of mental ill health and the stigma in Unilever and then seeing how powerful working on that can be. Two individuals and giving them the opportunity to put their hands up and ask for some help. Yeah. And I thought, well, that you know, maybe that's maybe that is part of my purpose. Maybe that is what I want to go out and, and bring to the world. And so, um, and so I, yeah, middle of 2014, I'd had 25 years with Unilever. They were probably good to see the back of me. Um, <laughs> and I was ready to go out and to share those learnings, uh, with the world. And it's been the most unbelievably rewarding journey over the last eight years.
0: Fantastic. So purpose within corporates, I think a lot of people are cynical about that. How did it... I'm
1: very, I'm very cynical about
0: it. <laughs> right, okay. Because it seems to be one of those statements that people make in order to in, inject some positivity, perhaps some external recognition about what's happening within an organization. But in practice, how does it manifest? And how yeah. do organizations make sure that it's something real, not just something you stick on, yeah, on the absolutely. website?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's just... You know, I have, I mean, it's, this is not my term. I've seen it, but it's called purpose washing. All right? yep. So guess what? We want to attract some millennials. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to make sure that we've got a nice sense of purpose as an organization. Within then these millennials will come and work for us. These talented millennials who are looking for organizations that are more purpose-led. And so, you know, we'll spend an hour or two hours in the boardroom and come up with some Pithy statement, which kind of outlines our purpose as an organization, and then we'll stick it all over the walls. And we'll put, you know, but, but at the end of the day, we won't really, really embed it uh, within the organization. And, mm. um, and, you know, the interesting thing about that, Ollie, is that, um, is that there's some research I think that Deloitte did recently. Um, do you know what age group is actually looking for a sense of purpose more than millennials? It's I'll 45 plus. It's right. 45 plus in an organization, you know people who are at that stage in their lives and they're really beginning to reflect on a sense of purpose and a sense of meaning. Um, And so I am very critical of, you know, it being seen to be a marketing exercise. So we're going to have a sense of purpose so that we can market our organization. You know, my experience in Unilever was this absolutely was not about marketing Unilever. This was about transforming the performance of that organization. Mm. You know, we had done, we had done, we had tried everything to transform Unilever's performance. I mean, and, and in many ways, Patrick Sesco, who was the CEO before Paul Pullman, I mean, he saved Unilever, I think, in many ways, because he created this more global entity as an organization. But what happened is that we restructured, restructured, we took cost, cost, cost out of the business. And you can go so far in doing that. And then you need something else. You need something else. and And Paul, you know... To his credit, I mean, that's something else, was to rediscover a sense of purpose. And, you know, essentially what it did, Ollie, is it, it created a sense of pride and ambition in Unilever. It just brought back a sense of pride and a sense of ambition. And yeah. that then contributed to the transformation of the organization.
0: So in that case, when an organization comes to you and says, look, Jeff, we think it's time to not just think about injecting purpose but we want to make sure that this is something which is fundamental to our business. I mean where do you even start with that? And is, yep. it, is it easier with a smaller organization? No, I the think there's say? the same approach. I think it's the same
1: approach irrespective of the size of the organization. So so I see I see kind of, you know, two phases to this work. Um, you know, the first is is to help that organization rediscover its sense of purpose. You know, I mean, and and you'll know this better than I do, Ollie. I mean, being an entrepreneur at heart, you know, when you started up your digital marketing business or any of these businesses, whether it's a Unilever, whether it's a Barclays, I mean, those founders, they started those businesses with a sense of purpose. You know, in, in Unilever's case, you know, Lever Brothers, Lord Lever, he wanted to make cleanliness commonplace in the world, mm. you know. And so, what did he do? He he began to manufacture a bar of soap called Sunlight, and he wanted to bring hope to people's lives by having clean homes and clean bodies. And the reason he called it Sunlight was because sunlight brings hope mm. uh, to people, having you know waking up on a nice blue sky sunny day. But what happens is, you know, you you go from that small startup to a scale up to this large bureaucratic institution that loses its way and so i think the first phase is to engage with the executive and the board to say let's let's rediscover that sense of purpose let's go back into the heritage of this organization let's let's go and let's go and talk to all of our stakeholders and engage in all of our stakeholders and, and get them to to work with us in rediscovering a sense of purpose that feels right for the challenges that the world faces today. Yeah. So, so, so that is phase number number one and then and that's the easy bit, Ollie. you know if I take my experience in Unilever, that probably took us six to eight months. I mean the real the real difficult bit is is the embedding is the living it within the organization. And, you know, after doing that for five years in Unilever, when I left, I kind of reflected on what were those levers, what were those critical success factors that ensured that we would live and embed this within the brands and across the organization. So look, I think the first one is having a CEO who's prepared to go to the market and tell the market no more guidance (laughs) on a quarterly basis. Because you cannot you cannot do this work if every quarter you're going to be wrapped over the knuckles because you've invested in x, y and Z because you needed to invest in that to begin to embed and live out a sense of purpose, but because of that investment your you know your margins have been reduced um, or I don't know maybe you haven't sold as much product so so I think the first bit is 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 you know having a CEO who's prepared to engage with the investor community and say to them, look, I need time. I need a bit of time. And I, I'm not, you know, and, and Paul did that. You know, It was amazing. I mean, Paul went to the market and he said, no more guidance. Yes. We'll talk to you once a year, but I need some space. I need some, I need some space. I need some slush to be able to, to, to do this. I think the second bit is, 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 is having a purpose. I mean, the words mean nothing. You've got to translate those words into something that is measurable. You know, we treasure what we measure. And so in Unilever's case, I mean, yes, the purpose is to make sustainable living commonplace in the world, but that's meaningless. Now, when you you translate that into some goals that you'll be able to measure and track, which we did back in 2009, which was improve the health and well-being of a billion people in the world you know, reduce environmental footprint by half, make sure all your raw materials come from sustainable sources and enhance the lives of millions and millions of smallholder farmers. Now we start, you know, now we start um, having a, a sense of purpose that has got some goals, there's some measures behind it. We can hold ourselves accountable internally and externally against against the progress that we're making against those goals and measures so i think that's the second thing you know and so coming back to our earlier conversation around purpose washing you know i mean all i see are these lovely purpose statements and then i say well tell me what that means what does it actually mean Mm -hmm. what do you set what goals are you setting and how are you going to track whether you are living this out and if they can't answer that question well then it's some marketing exercise that we've that, that you know that organization is engaged in I think the third bit, um, Ollie, is around the whole, the, whole, the whole mindset around leaders and leadership development. And, you know, we used to talk about developing leaders in the world. Well, guess what? We changed one word in that sentence. Let's develop leaders for the world. <laughs> one word is changed in the sentence, okay? But, that, but just having that as the mindset that all of our leadership development programs will be about developing leaders for this world. Not mm. in this world, you know. Um, making sure that those cynical leaders, those cynical individuals in the organization, were 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 immersed in some of the big challenges that the, that we were trying to overcome. So, talk about sustainable sourcing of raw materials. Well, took the procure- procurement team to Indonesia and let them live in the plantations for a, a week or so, and let them see how communities live off those plantations and if those plantations didn't exist in 10 or 15 or 20 years time look at the devastation you'd bring to those communities and so more immersive and action learning for the leaders in in order to try and get some of these cynics over the line and on board yeah. and wanting to advocate for that so that would be the other critical success factor
0: which is a pretty pragmatic way of looking at it actually isn't it i think when a lot of people hear purpose they think of something a lot fluffier yeah, But actually, you know, that's, that's really tangible. And yeah. ultimately, it's linking it back to the performance of the organization, an organization which employs tens of thousands of people, maybe more than that. I mean, I'm not sure. Well,
1: 190,000 people, you know, right. when I was doing this, there work, we go. And then down yeah. to 175,000. Um, I mean, the other thing, Ollie would be is around, and this is the hard graph stuff, okay, that I'm going to talk about now. And 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 leaders and line managers—they don't love doing this work, but but having to re-engineer some of the processes, some of the systems, some of the policies in the organisation, you know. So let me give you an example: uh, the innovation process. You know, I mean, is 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 the purpose and the goals that we are going after is that central to our innovation process? Are we making sure that the innovations that are coming through the funnel? are going to contribute to those goals and changing the process so that they do contribute to those goals. You know, a brand strategy, you'll know this better than I do, you know, doing a brand strategy and making sure that in the brand strategy process, the questions are being asked around how is this brand going to contribute to the purpose, to the goals and, and making sure that that becomes part of the brand strategy process. You know, your recruitment process, are you recruiting into your organization like-minded individuals, people who actually want to advocate for this? They, are, mm. they, want to, they want to work in an organization that is trying to make the world a better place and, and really testing that in the recruitment process. So, so the whole promoting, you know, promoting people on the basis of their degree of advocacy and engagement in living out and embedding a sense of purpose within the organization and not just promoting people on just their results but have they achieved their results in a way that is that is aligned to to what we're trying to achieve from a purpose point of view having yeah. the right partners making sure that you've got the skills and the capabilities because this takes time so you know those are just some of the critical success factors that we had to employ and work on over a period of time i mean it's a major change program this is a transformation of the organization and um and so you know, um, really focusing and having a having a, a CEO and an executive team that is going to make decisions that are in support of some of those critical success factors becomes absolutely critical in 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 the journey that you that you go on in embedding and living a sense of purpose as an organisation.
0: Yeah, and, and let's let's relate that experience then to your own journey. So you decided to strike out on your own. You clearly had the purpose in mind. Have you been able to stick very clearly to working with only the sorts of organizations that you want to work with? Or do you have to be a little bit more flexible when it comes down to it?
1: Well, I, you know, I mean, there's two parts of my work. So there, there's the work around purpose and helping organizations to rediscover, embed and live that sense of purpose. And then there's, you know, there's my work around the whole mental health and breaking mm. the stigma of mental ill health. Now, fundamentally, my purpose is about creating workplaces all over the world where people feel that they genuinely have the choice to put their hand up, to ask for some help, if they're struggling with a common form of mental ill health. So I don't want there to be any workplace anywhere in the world into the future where you can't just have that conversation, just like you can do it if you're suffering with a common physical illness. You won't think twice about asking for help or having a conversation with your line manager or a peer. So why can't it be the same for mental and emotional struggles? And, you know, having the, when it comes to that, having that clear sense of purpose, I don't know, Ollie. Somebody once said to me, a sense of purpose will take you to people and to places you could never imagine. It will take you to people and to places you could never imagine. And, um, and, and yes, there have been moments that I've kind of thought, gee, am I going to be able to continue with this? Am I going to be, a, you know, this month, is there going to be enough money that's going to come in? And I know this sounds trite, but, but the universe has conspired. The universe has conspired. And it has, and it has created those opportunities for me. And when it comes to the mental health work, I will work with any organization. I will work with any organization. I'll work with a tobacco company. Why? Because there are people in that tobacco company who might Mm. be struggling and who want to know that they're working for a place where they can have this conversation because it might just save a life. Mm. And I think when it comes to the purpose work and this kinds of organizations, you know, that is about looking the CEO in the eye, looking the CEO in the eye and really getting a sense of how important is this to him or her. Yeah. And if if they are not if it's not then I'm not interested. I'm not interested in working in that kind of organization.
0: I'd I'd love to ask you a few questions about your mental health work if that's all right. Yeah, of course. Um, so I, I think there's often a sense, and I think maybe leaders are particularly guilty of this, where there's a sense that you always have to bring this positive mindset to every day you have at work. But should we be striving for that all the time, or is it okay to have a bad day? It's okay not to be okay. It's absolutely okay not to
1: be okay. But what's not okay, I don't think, is every day as a leader to be a drain. I talk about drains and radiators.
0: Yeah, I love that expression. And they are
1: you've heard it, eh? Hey? And there yeah, are drains. It, yeah. There are leaders out there who drain and suck every bit of energy out of you. And that's not acceptable that is not acceptable i mean you know i think leaders need to bring energy to their organization hmm. they need to radiate energy they need to bring that energy and i think that they have a moral responsibility to do that you know who who gives any leader the right to bully you to suck everybody's energy out of you when you're coming to work to give of your best to try your best to earn a a decent living, to educate your kids, to put food on the table, to pay your mortgage. And so I think there's, at, 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 at a certain level, I think there's a moral responsibility for leaders to look after their own well-being. And, you know, I can't bring energy to my work if I am not physically, emotionally, mentally, and have a sense of a purpose and meaning in my life. And it's my responsibility. It's my responsibility to... To to prioritize that sense of well-being because I honestly believe that if you have a sense of well-being and you're feeling well physically, mentally, and emotionally and spiritually, you will bring energy. Now you can't do that every single day. Of course, there are going to be days where you know you're going to have a bad day, and there might even be you might have a bad week. But I think too often, um, for me, it's not it's not it's not responsible. You know, for that to persist three, four, five weeks, six weeks, half a year, two years, sucking the energy of people out of you, out of, out of the organization. Um, and, but, but I think part of the problem is, and I'm, you know, this is a provocative statement that I'm going to make, is that, is that I think sometimes leaders, and I was probably one of these, you kind of get to that point where you kind of think you're invincible. Do you know what I mean? You are invincible. And so guess what? You stop caring about your own well-being. And mm. I honestly believe, Ollie, that if you don't care about your own well-being, you will not care about the well-being of anybody else. Nobody else in the organization. You won't care one iota. And so I think more and more, in terms of, you know, you know some of your work is around the future of work and what the future of work looks like. I think more and more, we've got to get leaders and organizations to think far more strategically about this concept of well-being their own well-being, the well-being of their employees. And guess what? You then get higher levels of productivity, engagement, performance, et cetera, et cetera. But but ultimately, ultimately, I think leaders have got to take more responsibility for looking after their own well-being, their own health, so that they can radiate and bring energy to an organization. But yes, of course, they can have the off day and an off week. We all have that.
0: Actually, I mean, thinking again from the angle of – pragmatism and practicality so in the future creativity innovation it's always important but it will become ever more so as technology automates some of the more mundane tasks and the defining you know characteristics of a successful company will often be the creativity of its people and there is a complementary effect between creativity and mental health isn't there in that creativity can help improve mental health and really clearly Better mental health allows people to often be more productive. Absolutely, Oli. I mean, I have a little, I have
1: a little acronym, and it's called Can Do. Right, and and it's an acronym that I use to direct sixty minutes or ninety minutes of activity every single day to enhance and maintain my well-being. And the acronym CAN-DO stands for the following. The C in CAN-DO stands for connect. So I will find five minutes, 10 minutes, every single day to just do some connection. And I can tell you during COVID, it's been a lifesaver because what has COVID done with lockdowns? It's disrupted our social connections. Mm. But finding just those five minutes every single day to just have a moment with my daughter or with my wife, or with a friend who I haven't spoken to for ages, or with nature. So connection, connection is such a critical driver of our emotional health, all right? The A in can do stands for being active. So nothing gets in the way of a 30-minute run, or a bike ride, or a walk every single day. Nothing gets in the way of that. The N stands for just try to be nice to someone, every day. Yeah. Just try and be nice and see what that does to a sense of purpose and a sense of meaning. The D in Can Do stands for discover, be curious, be creative, do a drawing, do a painting, do a crossword, you know, but just, just oil those neural pathways. It's so good for your mental health. It's so good for your mental health. And then finally, the O is all about observation. Every two hours take a five minute observation break where you just do nothing. Five minutes of doing nothing. You just go and stand outside and you just observe the beauty of the world that we live in. And you you listen to a bloody mindfulness app or a meditation or you do some breathing exercises. But your point around creativity, you know, it's part of that discovery about being creative. And you know what? You talk to people who, who struggle with bipolar. You know that sometimes they are their most creative when they are the most manic in their depressed state. They can be their most creative in those states. So, um, so yes, I think creativity, discovery,
0: being curious is a critical ingredient to maintaining good mental health. And I completely get your point. I think there's probably loads of famous examples of people being in mental ill health and being incredibly creative, but that isn't sustainable, is no. it? I, I like that last bit about observation because reflection in and of itself is key, isn't it? And I think even as part of the creative process, part of that creative process is going away, exactly. letting thoughts wash over you and those connections you know, emerging. And actually without an opportunity for, for reflection, you you can't achieve that. Are you seeing leaders be- practice better mental health? Because how does it work when they're in the midst of a fundraise or when you're hitting the end of the year and you've got to really extract, or at least the feeling is you've got to extract every single minute from every single hour from the day? How do people stick to it?
1: Um, you know, we, We're not going to get away from, um, I don't know, some big law firm and a bank having an all-nighter on doing a deal, and that's going to go for two or three weeks, okay? I mean, I think that's part of the reality of you know the world that we're living in right now, and the system, and bloody capitalism in its current form. Um, but I think that I think I think I think what's got to change is that you know how are you how are you protecting yourself in such a way that you can endure those three weeks, that mm-hmm. you can get through those three weeks, and I think too often. We are not prioritizing our well-being. We're not giving 60 to 90 minutes every single day to that acronym that I've just given you. Yeah. And because we are not doing that, we cannot sustain. And 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 we come through those three weeks completely worn out, irritable, suck every bit of energy around the uh, out of the people that are around us. Um. And I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I think it's, I think it's this individual, it's taking this individual responsibility and accountability to prioritize the most valuable asset you have. Mm. And you know, you know, Ollie, COVID, you know what it's done? It's democratized mental ill health. It's democratized this conversation. I can tell you there is nobody out there in the world today who during the pandemic, has not had days and weeks where they have felt anxious, where they have felt depressed, where they have felt sad, where they've had significant disruption to their sleep. And why? Because there's been so much uncertainty in the world. There's been this disruption to all of our social connections. There's been some of us who've lost loved ones and the trauma of that. There's been the changes to the family system and the family structure, all this virtual working. And so I think more and more, senior leaders and people who used to poo-poo some of this mental health stuff have actually experienced it themselves now. Mm. And, And I think that is opening a door for organizations to begin to think far more strategically around how do we make this stuff stick? How do we ensure that we encourage and maintain the mental health of our people, the emotional health of our people, the physical health of our people?
0: I sometimes talk about the idea of pacing in sport as being a no. a good analogy here, and actually, and that balance between rest and recovery, which athletes are so brilliant at. You know, I think if you're a marathon yeah. runner, let's let's use the marathon as the equivalent of a three month sprint. You know, you can you can run a marathon, but what what those marathon runners aren't doing the next day is getting up and running them up the marathon. It's the right balance between rest and recovery, yeah. and I suppose I asked the question knowing what it's like to be in that mode when there's a big pitch on or there's a a real deadline that you've got to meet. I think as a leader, when you're asking people to step up in that way, getting the balance between being really understanding of their mental health but also being realistic about the demands of the business can be a real challenge. And, and you know, in my can-do,
1: the O, the observation, that's recovery. That is recovery. You know, every two hours, having that recovery break just 5 minutes to do nothing and just recover and i often say exactly as you said you know athletes they are as disciplined in their recovery as they are in their trainings
0: mm.
1: but you know what in the in the corporate working world oh recovery are ah, you skiving you know that's mm, a, yeah. there's an opportunity to skive and we don't see it as a critical enabler to enhancing well-being therefore energy, and therefore performance.
0: There are lots of solutions out there which are trying to democratize the ability of people within an organization to access support around mental health. Yeah, I think we also have to be a little mindful that digital connectivity carries its own risks, and I think we yes. probably saw evidence of that during COVID as well. But I'm wondering whether you feel or can see that that technology is really accelerating the change or whether that it's something more fundamental than that yeah
1: so for me Ollie I
0: think it's both so I think that having having
1: well-being as a strategic priority within your organization you know I'm I'm actually sick and tired of spaghetti well-being like throwing a bit of spaghetti against the wall and some of it sticks and some of it doesn't stick etc cetera, etc cetera. and we have all these you know, ad hoc activities that we run and we give you all this stuff and by the way, you better use it and it's your fault if you don't use it, all right? I mean, that is not a strategic approach to enhancing the well-being of your people. And and the question I often ask CEOs and CFOs is, if you buy my, and it's not my theory, but the most critical enabler of performance of the people in this organization is their energy. Mm. I mean, you know, I don't know whether you enjoy a bit of football, but, I mean, when Liverpool plays Man City, I mean, look what Klopp's done to that bloody, I mean, that place. You know, what's he brought to Liverpool over the years? He's brought energy and passion to that club. Well, look at the results, okay? And so if we buy that, that it's a critical enabler to performance, and we can only be energized when we feel holistically healthy, then my question to you, Mr. CFO, who rolls your eyes at this well-being fluffy stuff, or the CEO, is why is it not a strategic priority? Just tell me why you don't want energized people in the flow, high performing or individuals in your organization. And if you can't answer that question, where's it on your risk matrix, Mr. CFO? Where's it on your risk matrix? You know, when people are not healthy, are you are you comfortable with the level of investment that you're putting in to mitigate the risk? And so I think well-being has to become more of a strategic priority within the organization. Now, in the execution of that priority, as you execute that strategic plan around that priority, I think there's a place for digital. I think there's a place for digital. And there's a place for digital, I think, more and more on the proactive, encouraging, and preventing people from getting ill. There's some wonderful, wonderful uh, di- bits of digital technology and apps that are beginning to come onto the market which are around prevention and proactive use of these to help people maintain good mental and emotional health. Yeah. Yes, of course, there's also got to be, you know, the NHS and the support services are, just cannot take the demand and we have to find a way to ensure that digital can also contribute to providing support and help, et cetera, et cetera. But to answer your question, I think it's a bit of both. And I think the digital stuff comes in the execution of the strategy. And I would like to see that digital stuff being more around the prevention and the proactive and encouraging good habits than using the digital for waiting for somebody to fall over and then we've got some support in place.
0: And by the way, I think with those digital platforms – Our minds immediately jump to, for example, there are some brilliant, brilliant companies doing this. You know, counselling, for example, which can be preventative as much as curative, absolutely. But But actually, I'd say a much more simple tool to use to actually engender this strategic imperative and this is something that managers can do with people, if you allow people and encourage people and actually insist upon people leaving space within their day Absolutely. to observe and be active Absolutely. and get in touch with Network and Connect, then I'll tell you what, it fundamentally changes perceptions mm-hmm. of what's possible. And I think yep. that part of the problem is we're cramming our calendars. Yep. And so, so look, there's, there's room for all of these solutions, but I think actually sometimes the solutions appear more complex than they actually are.
1: It's about leadership behavior and role modeling that stuff. Coming back to where we started, if you as a leader cannot care for your own well-being, you will not care for anybody else's. You will not encourage it. You will not say to them, go and apply can-do. Go and have that walk around the block. You know, Take your recovery moments, blah, 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 blah. You know, so that is, and for me, that is part of the strategic framework that you would develop, is that you, we would begin to shift the leadership behavior, the role modeling. We want leaders to role model some of this stuff. And it can yeah. have a huge impact, as you say
0: huge impact yeah well jeff some amazing insights there and in particular can do i think that's going to go on my wall just to remind even yeah. me to to do that and then and i think this is the thing isn't it you can be very aware of the need to do these things during a, the course of a busy stressful day it can be difficult to remind yourself i have a little poster on my mirror in
1: the morning and it's called can do and nothing gets in the way of 60 minutes
0: dedicated to can do nothing brilliant ollie, jeff thanks so much for your time i really appreciate it
1: been a pleasure ollie and, and keep up the great
0: work thank you thank, thank you. you and that was my conversation with jeff mcdonald what a fantastic guest i hope you found it as interesting and useful as i did next week another brilliant guest best-selling author of think big and london school of economics behavioral science professor grace lord and joined me to talk about taking the next big step in your career until then have a great week